Hello, and welcome to the Williamsburg Unitarian Universalists. We are a vibrant liberal religious community that treasures diversity, practices justice, and teaches love and respect for everyone. We grow spiritually through worship, shared learning and service and relationships that go deep. As we say each Sunday, whoever you are, whomever you love, whatever your image of the holy, your presence here is a gift. All are worthy, all are welcome. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the Williamsburg Unitarian Universalist online worship service. Our greeter today is Liz Wiley. Our other worship leaders are our, our guest speaker, Reverend Andrew Millard. Our, we have our Director of Religious Education, Austin Peterson, and our Assistant Director of Music, Dave Robbins. If you'd like to follow along with the order of service, I invite you to visit wu.org to download a copy. And I will try to paste a link. If you're visiting today, we're glad you're here. We invite you to say hi and type a quick note in the Zoom chat. And if you'd like to sign up for our mail email list, please fill out our online visitor form at wu.org. After the service, we invite you and everyone to stay in the main room to reflect on today's service or to accept an invitation to join one of our smaller social groups. I have a few announcements. The membership book will be open for signing virtually today following the service. If you have completed starting point sessions one and two or are transferring from another congregation or are a young person who has completed the coming of age class, we welcome you announce your interest in signing when prompted at the end of the service and you will be added to a special breakout group. We also want to remind everyone today is the last day to fill out the WUU reopening survey to share your ideas, questions, concerns as we prepare to reopen our building as soon as conditions allow. You will be asked about your preferences for online or in-person worship plus the safety precautions that will help you feel comfortable gathering in person if you wish. Your feedback is important. The survey link was in the weekly spiral email and I will also post in the chat. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our guest, the Reverend Andrew Clive Millard has served the mission of the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of the Peninsula in Newport News since 2010. Born in England, he came to the United States to be a physicist and then found religion by way of environmentalism. Andrew lives in Gloucester with Allison and their apparently preteen pre daughter, Olivia. He looks forward to returning today for his fourth pulpit swap with Reverend Laura. Thank you. Now we go to our prelude.
Again, welcome. Here at WUU, we are committed to being an anti-racist, anti-oppressive congregation. We work to ensure that all people are treated with dignity, fairness, and equity. In our worship, we celebrate the contributions of peoples of diverse racial and ethnic backgrounds, genders, and sexual orientations. We are happy that you have joined us via live stream, audio or video or Zoom. Whether you have come seeking comfort, encouragement or inspiration, you belong here, you are seen here, even if we cannot see you physically. Now I invite you to say our welcoming words. Please, as you say them, Let's speak them to each other and know that we are connected across the distance. The words, most of them are pasted into the Zoom chat. Let's say them in unison. Folks on Zoom, we will unmute you so that you can hear each other. Come, come, whoever you are, whoever you are, whoever you love,
Good morning, everyone. It's great to be worshiping with you today. This is my fourth pulpit swap with Reverend Laura and an even dozen times with the Williamsburg UUs. So thank you for your always warm welcome. Our next pulpit swap will be in person, but until then, at least it's good to see you all via Zoom. The work of building the beloved community continues. With every smile, every word, every act of service and generosity, we hold connections, threads in the great web that sustains us and holds us together. For it is only in connecting with one another that we can truly make a difference and bring our vision into being. As two flames lit one fire 60 years ago, our UU chalice holds two traditions, the Universalist and the Unitarian, each with their own histories, hopes, and dreams. Our Unitarian heritage bids us light our chalice in the name of freedom, in the light of reason, and in actions of inclusion. So it is that we gather to celebrate our common commitment to freedom, reason, and inclusion. And our Universalist heritage bids us light our chalice in the name of faith, in the light of hope, and in actions of love. So it is that we gather to celebrate our shared aspirations of faith, hope, and love. May our flame kindle within us as it did for those who lit it 60 years ago, strength and hope, clarity and commitment, gratitude for the past and faith in the future. Thank you. Now, Please join me in saying the words to light our chalice. If you have a chalice or candle handy nearby, please go ahead and light it now. And again, we'll unmute you to say the words in unison. We light this chalice for the warmth of love, for the light of truth, for the energy of action. And, and for the harmony of peace. Peace in our hearts, peace in our community, Good morning. So because Reverend Andrew is going to be telling us a little bit about the Cambridge platform this morning, I wanted to tell a old, good American folk story. The Gingerbread Man. Once upon a time, there was a little old lady and a little old man and a little boy that all lived together in a cabin. And the little old lady baked a gingerbread man. She put him in the oven and she said to the little boy, all right, it is your job to look after the gingerbread man. And no sooner had she gone out the door into her garden so that she could weed some weeds and garden her garden, than the oven door popped open and the gingerbread man popped out and said, run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. And the little boy said, oh no, I better run after you. I'm gonna catch you. And the gingerbread man said, run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. And so he ran past the little boy and he ran past the little old lady and he ran past the little old man. And as he ran past them, he said, run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. 
And so he ran past them and he came across three mowers. And the mowers said, oh no, we're gonna catch you. And he said, run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. And they ran and ran as hard as they could, but as hard as they ran, they could not catch the gingerbread man. And so they flopped underneath the shade of a tree, exhausted. And so the gingerbread man continued to run and run and run. And he came across a bear and he said, bear, I have outrun a little boy. I have outrun a little old lady. I have outrun a little old man. I have outrun three mowers and I'm going to outrun you. So run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. And the bear ran and ran and ran until the bear was exhausted and flopped down into some grass and took a rest. And the gingerbread man kept running until he saw Fox. And Fox looked at him and the gingerbread man looked at him and said, you can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. I have outrun a little boy, I've outrun a little old lady, I've outrun a little old man, I've outrun three mowers, I've outrun a bear, so run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. And the fox said, what was that? Lean in a little closer, I couldn't hear you. And so the gingerbread man leaned closer and the fox said, how? And took a big old bite and that was the end of the gingerbread man. Thank you, Austin. And now I invite you to join in a spirit of meditation, reflection and prayer. Let us open our minds and hearts to the joys and sorrows moving in our lives and in the life of the world. Who or what is on your heart today? What loved ones and concerns for our world would you lift up? I invite you now to call on the holy in whatever words and images are most dear to you as we enter, enter a shared silence with the ring of a bell. Amen and blessed be. Let us seal this time of meditation and prayer with a hymn.
Sabbath day and bring peace and healing on thy wing and to every weary one let the word of blessing come thou shalt rest thou shalt rest welcome Sabbath Sunday, we make an offering from the bounty we are blessed to enjoy. We do so in a spirit of generosity and in recognition of our ongoing commitment to serve our world and share our values. If you are joining us for the first time, please feel free to give if you wish, but know that your presence is gift enough. Our offering today goes to our general operating fund to help cover all of those essential things like salaries and building maintenance, as well as all the activities that are so important to us as we prepare to return to our sanctuary. If you'd like to give through our website, please visit wuu.org and click on Give Online to WUU. If you'd like to give by text, please text a dollar amount of your gift to 757 5000688 and follow the prompts from there. Or if you prefer to give by check, please mail your check to WUU. The address is in the chat. Thank you all so much.
The promises we make say a lot about who we want to be. How we keep those promises says a lot about who we are. In 1648, the Congregationalist Churches of New England met in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to sign a document that was both a declaration of religious independence and an ecclesiastical constitution. In 2008, the Unitarian Universalist Association's imprint, Skinner House Books, published a contemporary reader's edition of the Cambridge Platform, including an introduction by UU minister and award-winning historian, Alice Blair Wesley. In her introduction, Wesley writes, early in the text, the Cambridge Platform makes a very strong statement on the importance of covenant. Only each member's promise made freely and individually to walk together with other members in the ways of love makes the people a free church. It reads, this form then being by mutual covenant, it follows it is not faith in the heart, nor the profession of that faith, nor cohabitation, nor baptism. But then in a later chapter, it says, such as admitted thereto as members ought to be examined first, whether they be fit to be received. They must profess in such sort as may satisfy rational charity that faith is there indeed. A confession and declaring of God's manner of working upon the soul is both lawful, expedient, and useful. The insistence that old members test and judge the substance of new members' neighborly love was a serious mistake. It soon gave the founders and generations of their heirs no end of trouble. The founders had tied entering the covenant to a particular kind of experience, an ecstatic falling in love with God that applicants for membership should be willing and able to describe. But most of the founders' children never had that experience, or if they did, they seldom volunteered to describe it. By the 18th century, preachers like Jonathan Edwards and other revivalists came to believe they could induce the qualifying conversion experience through fear. Over time, entering a church covenant became linked in liberals' minds with orthodoxy and hellfire preaching. Thus, even though 19th century liberal churches kept the earliest covenants on the books, beautiful, simple promises to walk together in the ways of love, those covenants were largely ignored, a pattern that continued for many decades. But if one does not speak of the covenant that constitutes the community as a church, the promise that all are cordially invited to enter, then what does one say is the basis of the liberal church? Long experience teaches that it cannot be a creed. I hope the day comes when many can explain ours is a covenantal church. We join by promising one another that we will be a beloved community, meeting together to find the ways of love as best we can see to do. We have found there is always more to learn 
about how love really works and could work in our lives and in the world. Words of Alice Blair Wesley. My wife tells a story of how, when she was in high school, she and her friends would talk about taking the driving test. A booklet from the DMV contained everything a driver ought to know, for those who were willing to read it. And in theory, anything in that booklet could be the subject of a question on the written test. With 10 questions, you had to get at least seven correct to pass. So there was intense interest in what those questions might be. Teenagers who'd taken the test were sought out to share their experience. Reports of tougher questions inevitably raised a school's collective anxiety, while mention of easier questions was more calming. One question, according to student law, was the subject of intense focus, a gimme question that every teenager prayed to see on their test sheet. What does a red octagonal sign mean? Anyone who was so unprepared, or I guess so freaked out beyond ordinary nervousness that they couldn't answer that question, probably didn't deserve to get their driving license. I share this with you because other than having taken the driving test myself, I've experienced a parallel situation in my own life as part of my preparation for the Unitarian Universalist ministry. Equivalent in many ways to the DMV, the primary gatekeeper for would-be ministers is the MFC, the Ministerial Fellowship Committee, that interviews mostly newly minted seminarians to see if they're ready to serve congregations. Rather than some hours behind the wheel of a car, the MFC interviewees have worked in hospitals with experienced chaplains and in congregations with experienced ministers. Rather than the driver's manual, the would-be ministers are expected to be familiar with everything they learned in seminary classes, with everything they experienced in workshops and trainings, and with everything they read on the MFC's extensive book list. And finally, Rather than a written test of 10 questions, the interview generally lasts 50 minutes to an hour or so with many more than 10 questions and definitely no multiple choice answers. And yet, there's still a gimme question. I was asked it as part of a set of quick answer questions and it was as follows. What is the Cambridge platform? I'm glad I wasn't so unprepared or so freaked out beyond ordinary nervousness that I couldn't answer that question. Rather, I said briefly and correctly, it's the founding document of our congregational polity. Now I'm gonna explain what that means, but first let's have a quick show of hands for those of you that I can see on the screen. Who here has heard of the Cambridge platform before? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, I see a number of hands, good. 
who had heard of it before reading about it in the UUA report, widening the circle of concern? Fewer hands, but still some, good. Okay, harder question, who here has read the Cambridge platform? Couple of hands, very good. Well, fair enough if you haven't. It was written over 370 years ago, and it's a bit of a slog. It's also heavily Christian, including over 300 references to the Bible. So putting that aside, let me explain what the Cambridge platform is before I explain what this piece of Puritan history has to do with us. As Peter Hughes, UU minister and editor of the online dictionary of Unitarian and Universalist biography explains it, the Cambridge platform is both a declaration of religious independence and an ecclesiastical constitution adopted well over a century before the corresponding political documents that marked the founding of the United States of America. You see, the churches of 17th century New England sought to define the ways in which they would govern themselves, free of interference by outside authorities such as the Church of England. That's the Declaration of Religious Independence bit. And with each parish free to govern itself. That's the ecclesiastical constitution bit. After all, the Puritans who came to New England were seeking the freedom to organize themselves in order to be authentic Christians as they understood what that meant. And given that the Puritans' understanding of religion differed from that of the British crown and the bishops of the Church of England, they looked to the Bible for guidance and to the new world as a place for their self-governing congregations. Now set aside what you may have heard about the Puritans and listen to how Alice Blair Wesley, UU minister and historian, describes them. These Congregationalists understood the Bible to be mainly about the free and covenanted social practice of love. As they understood church history, the substance of a free church has always been the same, the Holy Spirit of mutual love. The living gathered bodies of the member are the matter of the free church. Its form, the covenantal promise, defines the membership, determines its organizational structure, and imbues the church with promise, the potential to be a life-giving organization in the larger world. I don't know about you, but that sounds rather Unitarian Universalist to me. And there's a good reason for that. In the centuries following the creation of the Cambridge Platform, Unitarianism emerged as a distinct form of Congregationalism. As it happened, the independently originated Universalists organized themselves congregationally too. That's why when the American Unitarian Association and the Universalist Church of America consolidated a little over 60 years ago in May, 1961, they adopted a polity, which is simply an academic word meaning a structure of organization and governance. They adopted a specifically congregation-centered polity that is directly descended from the Cambridge platform. Now, usually when I say that Unitarianism is directly descended from the Puritans, 
I see a lot of people do a double take, since it's quite a surprise to hear that our liberal faith could have anything to do with what we generally imagine to have been an oppressive and soul-crushing religion. The Puritans, though, made a particular choice in deciding how to practice their religion. And that choice allowed, perhaps inevitably, for what we might call faith creep. You see, the Cambridge platform clearly emphasized the importance of covenant, how the Puritans were to be together and behave toward one another over creed, what it was they believed in the usual sense of faith. As Wesley puts it, only each member's promise made freely and individually to walk together with other members in the ways of love makes the people a free church. Different people with different beliefs might not be able to agree on a common creed, but that doesn't mean we can't covenant with one another to find the ways of love as best we can see to do. The Cambridge platform even has something that might sound to our ears an awful lot like a statement of freedom of belief, since it explains that the voluntary agreement of the covenant isn't about faith in the heart, since nobody else can see that, nor the profession of faith, since that doesn't necessarily specify to which particular church someone belongs, nor even cohabitation, since in the words of the document itself, even atheists or infidels may dwell together with believers. The problem, at least for the Puritans, but a blessing for we Unitarian Universalists, is that a community based on covenant is more flexible, more accommodating than a community based on creed. In other words, variations in belief that would fail the test of orthodoxy might be quite okay, so long as the unorthodox believer is still capable of meeting together to find the ways of love, knowing that there is always more to learn about how love really works and could work in our lives and in the world. It was probably only a matter of time then before some of those Congregationalists took a closer look at their Bibles and realized that any sort of doctrine of the Trinity isn't really there, hence Unitarianism or asked why an all-loving God would condemn any finite human soul to infinite punishment in hell, hence universalism. It took three centuries for those strands to come together and form Unitarian Universalism, 60 years ago on May 15th. But that's why we're a covenantal church, not a creedal church. It's why our denominational covenant, better known as the seven principles and six sources, begins with the words, we, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote. But at the other end of the principles and sources, there's another sentence, and we tend to forget about this one. As free congregations, we enter into this covenant, promising to one another our mutual trust and support. The promises we make say a lot 
about who we want to be. How we keep those promises says a lot about who we are. You see, the Cambridge platform defined congregational churches as being independent of external authorities. But it also established a community in which those churches were bound in relationship with one another. There were a number of ways in which congregational churches were expected to be in communion with one another, including sharing expertise, helping one another in cases of financial difficulty or ministerial illness, and convening neighboring churches to help return a troubled congregation to covenant. To recap, here's how the Reverend Dr. Natalie Fenimore, member of the Commission on Institutional Change that authored the UUA report, Widening the Circle of Concern, explains it. On the individual level, our congregationalism gives authority and responsibility to each member of our congregations and communities. And it is a proclamation of their worth and dignity. It says you are needed, you are valuable, you are central to the process of making a Unitarian Universalist community. There is nothing unless you make it. The power of the individual member of our congregational and covenanted community is best held with humility, Dr. Fenimore continues. We are asked to recognize that our power is shared with other individuals and with those called as partners in leadership within our communities. This is the dance of congregationalism, sharing leadership, recognizing when individuals are best in position to lead or to move back and making space for new ideas, change and transformation. Our congregationalist ancestors balanced the relationships of authority and responsibility between individual church members, between the congregation and the minister, and between each other. They recognized, Dr. Fenimore concludes, the tug between autonomy and fellowship that is inherent in our polity as we do it today. In other words, all of this is about being in relationship, individual members of congregations with one another, members of congregations with ministers, and congregations with each other. When I officially became a UU, back at the dawn of the 21st century, Unitarian Universalism had all but forgotten its heritage as a religion based in covenant. We knew we didn't have a creed, and even the seven principles and six sources seemed too much like a creed for some UUs. But in forgetting our heritage, we became the religion where you can believe whatever you want. The church of anything goes. Our courageous intention to welcome everyone, whoever they are, mutated into a shameful willingness to turn a blind eye to whatever people might do, whether someone's behavior be discomforting, rude, or even threatening. From some of the stories I've heard, it's actually amazing that Unitarian Universalism survived the 70s and the 80s. 
We've come a long way since then. 20 years later, covenant is everywhere you look, from religious education classes to small group ministry. In my congregation in Newport News, the board and some committees have covenants too, which are all worded very differently, but are all ultimately about how we intend to bring our best selves to our work together. But covenant isn't just the vital force within a congregation. It's also the vital force between congregations. Ten years ago, I did a little bit of modern circuit riding, and I preached in Williamsburg and in Norfolk, and of course in Newport News, that it was time to take seriously the idea of a cluster, a local group of congregations working together just as the Cambridge platform described. As it says in chapter 15, although congregations are distinct and are not therefore confused with one another and equal and do not therefore have dominion one over another, yet all congregations ought to preserve their communion one with another because they are all united, not only in mystery, but also in polity. And it goes on to list a number of ways that distinct and equal congregations should work together. The sorts of ways that UU congregations continue to work together. So our congregations have benefited from the Chalice Lighters program that collects small gifts of money from lots of UUs all across the Southeast, usually adding up to more than $20,000 a time. Seven years ago, the Hampton Roads UU congregations set up a Faithify campaign to raise over $10,000 in memory of the Reverend Jennifer Slade and support the Unitarian Church of Norfolk in moving ultimately to become Seaview. Another long-standing tradition is that I will occasionally swap pulpits with colleagues, as I did with Seaview's Reverend Viola Abbott last month and as I'm doing today with Reverend Laura. And thanks to a meeting that we first held in Newport News 10 years ago, there is now a Tidewater cluster of UU congregations from Fredericksburg down to Virginia Beach. And there's also a Blue Ridge cluster on the Western side of the state. But I want more. And Dr. Fenimore and the other members of the Commission on Institutional Change who wrote Widening the Circle of Concern clearly want more too. Based on its four years of work, the commissioners wrote that congregations lack a covenantal understanding with one another and with the UUA, which is critical to the effectiveness of congregational polity. Congregational leaders may use the idea of congregational polity to maintain an organizational independence that discourages them from joining with other congregations in the work of equity and justice. Reading this blunt assessment in the report hit me hard, but it also opened my eyes. Thanks perhaps to that distaste for covenant instilled by preachers like Jonathan Edwards and other revivalists who believed they could induce spiritual experiences through fear. First the Unitarians and then the Unitarian Universalists forgot 
about the backbone of what it means to be a liberal church. As a result, we UUs are very good at being independent, making our own decisions, setting our own budgets, electing our own leaders, calling our own ministers. But we've forgotten that congregationalism isn't about independent churches. It's about interdependent churches. I'm proud of the work that we did 10 years ago that created the Tidewater Cluster, but it's time for more. I mean, right from the start, the cluster got to work organizing an annual meeting, our own local mini general assembly with worship and keynotes and workshops and lunch with fellow UUs from across Virginia. And that was great. Being together, spending time with one another, catching up with old friends and making new friends, that's all good. But we never talked about why. We never talked about why we were doing this as UUs. I mean, there are lots, we never talked about what difference it made that we were UUs doing this. There are lots of other groups and clubs that bring people together around some common interest or concern, but we're not just another group or club. We are Unitarian Universalists, a religion with a 400 year history, not just a faith, but a faith in action with a practical theology based in covenant. If that basis is missing, are we still UUs? My pitch for the Tidewater Cluster hasn't changed much from my pitch to create it 10 years ago. Consider what we might learn from one another about congregational growth or leadership development or stewardship, I suggested. Think about what we might achieve together as anti-racism allies or collaborative green sanctuaries or cooperating welcoming congregations, I encouraged. Imagine what we might get out of combined youth group heritage trips or multi-congregation camps or joint choir festivals, I urged. All of that and more is what the cluster could be and yet we haven't moved beyond a limited once a year or less frequent gathering. I believe that the reason for that is that we never talked about doing this from a place of UU identity. We never drew upon our rich tradition and practical theology of covenant. So I've started a new campaign. I've responded to the assessment of the Commission on Institutional Change by talking with Reverend Laura and Austin and our colleagues about the fact that we need to hold congregational conversations about what it means to be in covenant with one another. Just as all our UU congregations have made a covenant with one another to be the UU Association of Congregations, so too do the seven congregations in the Tidewater Cluster need to make a covenant about being the Tidewater Cluster, and probably in more practical and directly applicable terms than the seven principles too, though I would note that the last line would very much carry over. As free congregations, we enter into this covenant, promising to one another our mutual trust and support. 
The promises we make say a lot about who we want to be. How we keep those promises says a lot about who we are. Let me give you one quick example of why we need a covenanted Tidewater cluster. Back in January, I was contacted by a Newport News member who does our payroll to ask if we had a typewriter in the office. He said that our W-2s and some other tax forms had to be typed. And while in previous years he went to a public library to use their typewriter, the libraries were closed due to the pandemic. In the end, he met someone in a parking lot on the other side of Richmond to buy a used typewriter, which he then had to fix, all so that he could prepare our tax forms. So my question is, why is every congregation, no matter its size and resources, left to figure out payroll by itself? Why do we think we have no option but to delegate such matters of legal consequence to members who have joined a church for community and prophetic action and spiritual growth, not to become unpaid essential workers? Why do we believe that every congregation should be figuring out and doing everything a congregation needs to do all by itself? The fact is that none of us should be having to do this work alone. It's too important and also too hard for every congregation to be trying to go it alone, inventing the wheel seven times when we only need to invent it once and could put the rest of that energy to much better use. In the words of widening the circle of concern, our covenant calls us to hold urgent and dear Unitarian Universalism's aspirations to building the beloved community with diversity, inclusion, equity, compassionate justice, and an acknowledgement of our interdependence with other forms of life. We have bound ourselves together in faithful discernment, not just by structure, but in our learning and living. Our common ministry must lead us forward toward transformation and liberation. We are called to travel this path together because together we are more. We are called to travel this path together because together we are more, both within congregations and between congregations. So let's do this. Our closing hymn is a version of the well-known song by Bill Withers, inspired by his childhood memories of the coal mining town of Slab Fork, West Virginia. He had moved to Los Angeles and was living in a poor section of town. And there Withers remembered that though life was hard in Slab Fork, there had been a strong community ethic in which people supported one another through thick and thin. Playing around on his piano, the phrase lean on me crossed his mind, and from that came the rest of his song. Let's sing.
so glad to have you with us in our community. Now let us say the words to extinguish the chalice and we invite you to blow out your candle at the same time. We will paste the words in the Zoom chat and again we will say them in unison. 
We extinguish the I invite you to imagine reaching out to one another, no matter how many yards or miles separate us physically, knowing that we are nonetheless connected to one another in spite of the distance. For in the words of Alice Blair Wesley, ours is a covenantal church. We join by promising one another that we will be a beloved community, meeting together to find the ways of love as best we can see to do. We have found there is always more to learn about how love really works and could work in our lives and in the world. Go in peace, walk in beauty, and blessed be.